summer blockbusters. Every year, millions of people flock to the theater to catch the next big movie that's taking place. Are aliens going to conquer Earth, or will Earth's mightiest defenders hold them off once again? Will The Rock have some big movie blockbuster that you can follow his actions throughout wherever he's taking you? Will there be a brand new comic book hero to cheer on? Maybe a Pixar movie to take your kids to? When I was a young adult, I loved going to the theater and went all the time. Now with three little kids, babysitting costs more than the movie, so we don't quite go out as much. But it's special, right? You get the popcorn, you get the big screen, you get the big sound, you get a whole group of people gathered together, watch this epic adventure take place. An unknown author gives this quote, stories connect us to one another, to our shared traditions, our legends, and universal truths. Stories engage our emotions. We share enthusiasm, problems, sorrows, and joy. They increase our understanding and our empathy. God understands this. A whopping 42% of the scriptures are said in narrative. You open it up to Genesis chapter 1, and immediately you are given the story of the creation of the world, the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. By Genesis chapter 3, we are given the story of how sin enters the world. In Genesis chapter 6 through 9, the story of what God does to that sin with flooding the whole earth. And then the story of Abraham, and on and on it goes, and that's just the book of Genesis. This sermon series is not summer at the movies. I'm not going to talk about how dinosaurs invade the earth and the dinosaurs invading our earth is like sin invading our hearts and we have to get rid of all of them. I am not doing that. But what we are doing is saying to our staff, saying to a couple guest speakers, pick your favorite Old Testament story and let it rip because we wanted to have some fun together. The last number of months have been really difficult. We've just come out of COVID, inflation is through the roof, there's tension at homes in the workplace, and we thought, let's have something that's really fun and joyful taking place on Sunday mornings over the next eight weeks. For that to happen, I need some congregational engagement. So here's what I need you to do. I need you, in just a moment, to clap and to cheer, to hoot and to holler as though you are at your favorite movie and you just want to embarrass yourself. I will give you a cue, you'll know it, but first a story. I'm a big fan of comic book movies. I know, 41 years old going on 20. It's really embarrassing. But opening weekend for Spider-Man, I made sure I had tickets and I bought two tickets and I said to my wife, you are welcome to join me, but I want you to know that I am going to embarrass myself. I'm going to cheer, I'm going to clap, I'm going to holler each time a new superhero is revealed. And she said, are you really? And I said, yes. So it was up to her whether she wanted to come or else I would have brought one of you. And so we arrive in the theater and the first person is revealed, sorry, minor spoiler, only one, it's a blind lawyer. And I start cheering and she goes, what are you doing? And I said, shh, it's going to build. Then there's a big reveal, and I cheer and I holler, and about 10 to 20% of the movie theater starts cheering with me. And then there's a third reveal, and I hoot and I holler and I cheer again, and I would say a solid 30% of the theater just cheers along, and she leans over to me and she says, are you proud of yourself? <laughs> and I lean over to her and I say, yes, I am. <laughs> I need you to cheer. The story, the first summer blockbuster here at Ellerslie, get ready, Elijah and the Priests of Baal. Yeah. 
Well done. That was, that was excellent. You put first service to shame. I love it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the great stories of Scripture. The stories that we'll be looking at over the course of the summer. We're going to talk about Samson. We're going to talk about Hosea and Gomer. We're going to talk about uh, Elijah and the priests of Baal and so much more. And God, as wonderful as these stories are, there is always something going on behind the scenes, always the work that you are doing. And so whether we're in this room and we're incredibly familiar with this story or whether it's brand new to us, may it be a joy walking through a story of watching you move. May my words fall down, O oh God, so that your words would be lifted up. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings 16. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible in the pew racks in front of you. If you're at home and you don't have a Bible, you can grab a tablet, a laptop, your smartphone, and download the Bible app. Uh, Bible's a little bit tricky. 1 Kings, not a book that you normally go to. Thankfully, there's a table of contents. You'll find 1 Kings in the Old Testament, meaning it takes place before Jesus. Big numbers are the chapter numbers. Small numbers are the verse numbers. Now... When we go through these stories over the next eight weeks or so, most of us have been away from high school for a little bit. So there's four basic components to any story. And we're going to go through that really quick. Some of our, path, our preachers might talk you through these four components. Some might give uh, outlines. Some might not do anything. So here are the four things you need to look for. There's always a setting. So this is the people, these are the places, this is Top Gun, we know we're going in, we're going to see Tom Cruise, it's going to be at an Air Force base, and I haven't seen it yet, but apparently it's awesome. We know there's going to be a plot and a tension. So when we think about Lord of the Rings, we know the setting, we know that Frodo Baggins is in the Shire. But what is the plot? What's going to happen? Well, he has to take that ring and somehow this little hobbit has to go to the pit of Mordor and destroy it. There's always going to be some conflict. Thinking about superhero movies, the most popular superhero in the world is Batman. So hopefully you're familiar with Batman. He's in Gotham. That's the setting. We know there's conflict. They have to get rid of the bad guys. But in, if all the bad guys are there, there is no conflict. It's the Joker coming up to Batman that we care about. And then there's always the resolution at the end. Once Sleeping Beauty finally awakes, then what happens next? What do we see at the very end? All good stories have a setting. And while the conflict is really going to take off in chapter 18, what we really need to do to understand this blockbuster is from 1 Kings 16, verse 25. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. Now, that doesn't really sound good, but it's going to get a whole lot worse. Jumping down to verses 29 and 30. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria for 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Now, you might look at that and go, like, is that, is that just hyperbole? Are they just saying that about every king? Are they all more and more worse than the one before them? No. A really quick piece of history here. Saul is the first king of Israel, and he's a little bit of a dud. Following Saul, we have David and his son Solomon. And between David and Solomon, we have the height of humanity, the height of the Israelite empire. Things are going tremendously well. The, world is, uh, the nation of Israel is flourishing, and the world is in awe of what's happening. But then Solomon's son thinks he can do better. 
And so rather than uniting Israel together, Israel and Judah separate. Israel is the northern kingdom with the capital of Samaria, Judah the southern kingdom with the capital of Jerusalem, where King David and Solomon bring Israel to its greatest height. Omri and his son Ahab bring it to its greatest decay. So how bad was it? Verses 31 to 33. As if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. You can almost hear the disgust of the narrator. He says it twice, both in verse uh, 30 and again later, that this is the worst king Israel has ever seen. We read that he worshipped Baal. He built an altar to Baal. He built a temple to Baal. It's not like Ahab just turned his back on God and that was enough. The text is telling us that there is open defiance. He is worshiping other deities. He's ignoring God's command. He is doing whatever he pleases because I don't give a rip about the God of my fathers. That sounds pretty bad. His wife is even worse. Jezebel is a symbol of evil, sexual immorality, and false worship. This two are a power couple from hell. And as bad as Ahab is, Jezebel is the one who's mentioned in the New Testament. We read this in Revelation. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who symbolizes evil, sexual immorality, false worship. She calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. When you care nothing for God, everyone does what is best in their own eyes. And you might be thinking, okay, well, why would they gather these two um, nations together? It's Old Testament, which means we need a map. So you have Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Just to the left side of Israel and Judah, you see um, the nation of Philistia. Those are the Philistines. Above that is the nation of Phoenicia. And you'll notice that Tyre and Sidon are right on the edge of, of the Mediterranean Sea. Tyre and Sidon are port cities. And so as far as Ahab is concerned, is Israel might have a little bit of land uh, against the sea, but they don't actually have a port city. And so they want to have a political alliance so that they can get their goods out through these nations. Ethbaal, the king of Phoenicia, the king of Sidon says, I'll tell you what, we can have a political alliance, but you cannot worship your God anymore. I'm going to send my daughter Jezebel, and I'm going to send 450 priests of Baal, another 400 priests of Asherah, and they will eat from your table every day. Then, for the first time in scripture, we are introduced to the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain all of these years except by my word. No welcome, no introduction, no origin story. Our North American ears are thinking, who is this guy? Where does he come from? We are not told. He just shows up. He faces the king of Israel and he says, no more rain because you have been awful. On one side... Ahab and Jezebel, standing across from them, Elijah, 
whose very name means the Lord is God. And with all the authority of heaven, he stares into their face and says, you have brought disaster into this place. This quote from Ronald Wallace is fantastic. To see Elijah appear so suddenly reminds us that we need not despair when we see great movements of evil achieving spectacular success on this earth. For we may be sure that God in unexpected places has already secretly prepared his counter movement. So Elijah shows up and says, no more rain. And you might wonder, what happens next? Elijah books it (laughs) and he gets out of Ahab and Jezebel's palace as fast as he possibly can. There's always more to say, but here's what you need to know. For three and a half years, Elijah has been hiding. For three and a half years, Jezebel and Ahab are trying to find him so that they can kill him. For three and a half years, there is drought all across the land of Israel. Then suddenly, Elijah sets up a meeting, and this is where we pick up. This is chapter 18, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel. You have your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah, who all eat at Jezebel's table. It's time for a showdown. We have the worst king in the history of Israel, who's been pursuing and hunting and looking for Elijah to kill him. Elijah, after three and a half years, finally shows up right in the king's presence. And Ahab looks at him and says, it's your fault that there's drought. And Elijah, with a backbone of steel, says, it's your fault and don't you dare blame me. You are the one who's worshiping false gods. You are the one who's brought in false prophets. You are the one who's disobeying God's commandments. Don't blame this on me. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, we read this. Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you. He will shut the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. God is just doing what he promised he would do. And Elijah is throwing down the gauntlet. You want to see power? Let's dance. I will meet you and all your priests and all your prophets and the entire nation of Israel, Mount Carmel. Let's do this. Chapter 18, verses 20 to 24. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is the true God. All the people answered, sounds good to us. Allow me to add another layer of intrigue. In the ancient world, they have their pantheons of gods. 
You're probably most familiar with the Greek pantheon and you know of Zeus and Aphrodite and Hermes and Poseidon. But you also have gods that are a lot more ancient than that. You have the ancient god of Egypt, Ra, who is the god of the sun and oversees all the other deities. And you have the god that the Canaanites worship the most, the god Baal. Baal is god of the storm. He is the god of rain, of thunder, of lightning. This story just got a whole lot more interesting. Basically, Elijah is looking at the priests of Baal. He's looking at Ahab. He's looking at Jezebel. And he is saying, you think your God is great? He is the God of the storm, and he can't even provide you with rain. Come, see what my God can do, and truly be amazed. Now, this is one of, if not my favorite stories in the entire Bible. There's some great stuff yet to come, but it's not just a story merely to entertain. There's a real plot, a real tension that's taking place here. As fascinating as this story is, as much as we anticipate this incredible victory, this isn't a gladiator standing in front of a group of people saying, are you not entertained? This is Elijah, and he has a real plan. He wants for the people of Israel to say, who will you worship? Who are you going to follow? Stop limping between one and the other. Choose a God, follow him. Take another look at verse 21. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you limp between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Ahab is a terrible human being. He oversees the entire nation of Israel. And when you have that type of leadership, when you have that type of um, people to watch over, you can do whatever you want. He can do whatever he wants as a dictator. He has to figure out, who is he going to worship? The people have to figure out, are you going to follow Ahab or are you going to follow the God of the Bible? The story is nearly 3,000 years old, and it remains incredibly relevant. And I think what happens for many of us is we, we fall into the space of chronological snobbery. And we think, you know what, 2,800 years ago, maybe they went to go to temples. And maybe 2,000 years ago in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, they went from temple to temple. But we don't do that anymore. But what if we have to be just a little bit more intellectually honest? The God of Asherah is the God of fortune. And maybe we don't build an Asherah pole in our backyard, but how many times do we kill ourselves trying to make a little bit more money, trying to get that promotion at work, trying to work so hard that we can have what our neighbors have? Or maybe we worship the God of Aphrodite. We might not go to a sex temple, but we live in a culture that is dominated by sex, especially this month. Do we think regularly about what this means and the impact that it has? James Dobson, who um, used to oversee Focus on the Family, had this great quote, and he said, 98% of men are addicted to pornography and 2% are liars. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. But his point is, how often do we fall to that sex god? What about Hestia? the God of family, parents in this room, and maybe I'm preaching to the choir, but it's something to think about. When your kids have hockey practice, dance recitals, things to go to on Sunday mornings, what are you going to do? It's not a guilt trip. What are you going to do? How are you gonna figure that out? 
I haven't even mentioned Asclepius or Venus, the gods of health and beauty. How many hours do we spend at the gym? How much money do we spend on makeup? Maybe without the, the most pervasive god of all is Pasithia, the god of comfort, where we think all I want to do is get home from work so I can catch up and binge on my latest Netflix show. No, we have to listen closely. He's, I don't want to be misunderstood. None of these are bad. Wealth is not bad if we steward it for God's glory. Sex is beautiful in the confines of a loving heterosexual marriage relationship. Family is a gift of God. Ice cream should be enjoyed by everybody. The problem is when these good things become ultimate things. Everything we have is a gift from God, but must never replace God. The ancient world at least admitted their tension. You know what? I need a really good harvest, so I'm going to go to the God of the crops. You know, I'm really struggling with fertility, so I'm going to go to Aphrodite and ask if she can help me out. You know what? I'm really struggling with my health, so I'm going to go to Asclepius and hope that things work out for the good. They at least acknowledge it. Are we willing to admit that we struggle when it comes to who do we worship? Will we admit that tension? The conflict really starts heating up in verses 25 and following. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bowl and prepare it first for you are many and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. They took the bowl that was given them. They prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered and they limped around the altar they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud, he is a God. Either he's musing, maybe he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey. Maybe he's asleep, must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out from upon them. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. Oblation means sacrifice or offering. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. What Elijah does here is absolutely brilliant. The plot, the tension, who will you worship? The conflict, it's the failure of the false gods. There is no straw man argument on Elijah's behalf. He gives the priests of Baal every possible chance to succeed. Mount Carmel is actually known as Baal's bluff. On the top of Mount Carmel is the sanctuary, the place where the priests and the prophets of Baal worship. And so Elijah is saying, I will give you home field advantage. This is your place of worship. 450 prophets against one. God of the storm versus the one God that I worship. Everything is in your favor. I am giving you every chance to succeed. Spoiler alert, God's going to send fire down from heaven. And that's pretty awesome. But it's not my favorite part of the story. My favorite part is actually verse 27, where he just starts mocking them. And maybe it's because I grew up playing sports, and maybe it's because trash talk was a big part of growing up playing sports, but I love what he does here. Cry aloud, he's God. Is he musing? Is he relieving himself? Is he is a journey? What's going on? Do you see what Elijah's doing here? He is saying, your false God will not answer you. Your false God is going to fall short. 
How great is Baal? If he's the god of the storm, is he trying to figure out the taps? Is it righty-tighty, lefty-loosey? How come there's no rain coming? Is he on some sort of trip and you have to yell really loud? Is he in the bathroom and just can't be bothered right now? Figure it out, priest of Baal. What are you doing? It's a failure of the false gods. Now let me be crystal clear because I do not want to get myself into trouble. This passage does not give permission to mock other religions or to mock personal beliefs. I have a lot of Muslim friends through soccer. If I were to mock them, that would not go well for me. When we arrive in the New Testament, we see Jesus and the Apostle Paul show up and they persuade people. They want to point out the failures of their way of thinking, but they do it gently and in a way that they can understand. And then they point towards the great power of the God who we worship. Elijah has no desire to see these priests come to faith. He cares about the nation of Israel. He wants them to make a decision. Who are you going to worship? Who are you gonna give your time, your attention, your money, your focus to? Will it be these false gods or will it be to the one true God? Take another look at verse 26. They took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. The show is about to begin. The nation of Israel wondering what's going to happen next. 450 priests calling out, crying out to God and nothing happens. Verse uh, 26 is also interesting because it says limping, which is the exact same word that Elijah says to them in verse 21. Depending on your translation, it won't actually have those same words, uh, which is why I appreciate the ESV. People of Israel, are you going to limp around? Are you going to dance around a decision? The priests of Baal are limping around, dancing around, trying to get God's attention, and nothing is happening. If that doesn't work, maybe we can add some personal sacrifice to it but nothing works. The calling out, the crying out, the personal sacrifice, the dancing to see if God will maybe answer us that one way. And we think, man, what a bunch of stupid people three millennia ago. But do we do the exact same thing? If only I'm a little bit more attractive, then maybe other people will notice me. Maybe pornography can replace my lacking sex life. If I sacrifice my family to get a promotion at work, isn't that the better deal in the end? If only we have a child, then all my problems will go away. It doesn't work. Pursuing these false idols will end up destroying your soul. Take a look at verse 29. There was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. There's this threefold declaration that emphasizes the complete lack of response by Baal, showing once again his impotence and his non-existence. This might be one of my favorite stories in the Bible. But we can't get sidetracked by the pyrotechnics. We can't get sidetracked by what's taking place just in the story itself. We have to ask the broader question, what is Elijah trying to do? Why does God have this in the Bible? Who will you worship? Because the false gods are always going to let you down. But the power of the one true God, that's a whole other matter. Verses 30 to 35, 
Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench about the altar as great as, uh, as would contain two seahs of seed. He put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on wood. And he said, fill four jars with water, pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. They did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench with the water. You are the nation of Israel. You gather together at nine in the morning, ready to see a fire show. And the priests of Baal, 450 of them, have every home field advantage. It's on their sanctuary land. It's 450 to one. They get to choose the bull. Theirs is the God of the storm. And they call out to God. And they dance for God. And they sacrifice for God. And at three o'clock in the afternoon, nothing has happened yet. So Elijah said, okay, it's my turn. One prophet, completely by himself, gets the lesser of the two bulls. He's the visiting team. He has no home field advantage, and he soaks this sacrifice. I'm not super handy, but I do know that putting water on a fire typically doesn't help. Twelve times, buckets thrown on the water, and the people are watching. What is God going to do? At that time of the offering of the Elijah, the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back and the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. It's the power of the one true God that brought the people to their knees. And listen to this. The priests were trying to earn Baal's blessing. And God is saying, I'm going to overcome all of your failures. Baal is the God of the storm. Hasn't rained in three and a half years. Baal is the God of the storm, but the priests could not get lightning to come down from heaven. Baal is the God of the storm in name only, for he is a false God and he is impotent. The God who we worship, the God of the Bible, is the one true God of limitless power. And he says, it shall not rain. And for 42 months, there is drought. He sent a ball of fire from heaven. It consumes the entire sacrifice. And he is about to pour down rain from heaven. We worship a God of unfathomable power. Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for is the sound of rushing rain. These words sound foreign to our ears. It's the 21st century. Everything goes. So why on earth would this loving God murder a bunch of people? Deuteronomy 
chapter 13. Remember, this is an Old Testament story. The false prophet or dreamer must be put to death. He preached a rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He has tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. Cancer is not defeated with a breath mint. It has to be cut out and thrown away. Now you just heard Ahab and Jezebel are not destroyed. And if you don't know what to read in your Bible next, just start in 1 Kings 17. The stories between Ahab and Elijah are incredible. The story leaves us with one penetrating question. Who will you worship? Stop calling out to a false god. Stop dancing around. Stop sacrificing to a god that will never answer your prayers. There's a lot of ways that I could go with this conclusion, but I'm gonna go with this. We worship a God of power. Now there's this beautiful verse in James chapter 5, 17, where it says, Elijah is a man just like us. Now if you don't know the rest of the story, allow me to tell you what Elijah does. He tells the rain to stop, and it stops for three and a half years. He is fed by ravens during this time. He raises a widow's son back to life. He, he goes to heaven in a flaming chariot. And so when we think, is he really just like us? The Bible is saying yes. The Bible is saying is that he is a person just like we are. He is a human just like we are. And we are going to lean hard into creating an invitational culture. And we might think, well, what does that mean? Because I don't think I can pour fire down from heaven. So what does that look like? How do we share with people the power of God? Because I could tell incredible stories from the mission field. But let's make it real personal. Share your story. Share your story. There's a reason when Mormons come knocking on your door that they want to get out their testimony as quick as they can because it's something that can't be refuted. Tell your story. How has God changed your life? What have you seen God do in your life? Has there been miracles? Has there been incredible answers to prayer? Has he healed you? Have you seen something radical take place? Two weeks ago, few weeks ago now, uh, we were talking about the spiritual gifts and we talked about the power gifts, prophecy, tongues, healing, um, works of miracles, things of that sort. And I stood up and I said, in 2011, at the Global Leadership Summit in this church, I was sitting right there and God said to me, one day you will be the lead pastor of this church. That's an incredible story. The very next morning, Russ, who's our director of operations, came into my office and said, you are not going to believe this. What do you got for me, Russ? And he said, in 2011, at the Global Leadership Summit, I was sitting right there. And God said to me, you will one day be the executive director of this church. We worship a God of incredible power. Share your story. Invite them to church. Invitational cultures don't necessarily start by inviting them to church. I acknowledge that. Get to know your neighbors. Go out for coffee. Go out to a restaurant with your friends. Have them into your home. Have them on your back deck for a glass of lemonade. Whatever the case might be. But we can invite them to church. And we can say, come to church and see what God is doing. Listen to the message. Sing the songs. Interact with some of my friends. Believe that God is real because it will transform your life. Two weeks ago was our 75th anniversary. Most of you were probably here for that, but if you weren't, it was awesome. 
It felt like you could reach out and touch God. It was so tangible and palatable in that moment. Invite your friends to church and see what God wants to do in their lives. Finally, pray for fire. I love this story. In the 17th century, philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal passed away. Shortly after he passed away, one of his servants grabbed one of his jackets and found in his jacket pocket this note. And on this note, it said, in the year of our Lord, 1654, Monday, 23rd of November, at the Feast of Clement, at half past 10 till half past midnight, fire. Pray that God would change your friends' lives because God wants to change your friends' lives. We always finish with Jesus and worship team, you can come on up. You might read this and go, Dave, where on earth do you find Jesus? Oh, this is awesome. You have the priests of Baal. They are calling out to God. They are dancing for God. They are sacrificing for God and nothing happens. And then you have Elijah. And Elijah screws it all up. I'm gonna put water on this fire. That will surely help. I'm going to make a mistake. I am outnumbered. What will God possibly do? But where does God send the fire? Not on the people of Israel who have been terrible in their own right, but on the sacrifice itself because God loves us so much that he sent his one and only son and the wrath of God falls upon the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ our Lord so that all of us might receive the wonderful blessing of being a follower of Jesus as long as we call on his name. This is the God we worship. This is the summer blockbusters. This is stories of God's at work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Elijah and the priests of Baal. Thank you for the reminder that we need to worship you and you alone and help us, oh God, to see your power. Give us wisdom to help in a loving, gentle way persuade people to see that the gods they are following will ultimately disappoint. And by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would go in front of us, that we would see our friends, our family members, our coworkers, our classmates come to faith in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.